Welcome to Walking in Faith, a weekly podcast dedicated to examining the Bible to help lifelong seekers of the kingdom of God expand their faith and understanding by exploring God's Word. Now let's join Pastor Rob Currington as he shares this week's message. Take your Bible and turn to Luke chapter 2. We're going to be doing things a little bit different. We've been in the book of Luke, but we're going to go back a little bit during the Christmas season and think a little bit about Luke chapter 2. Let me ask you, I'm looking around the crowd, I think most of you would, how many of you remember the old TV series, The A-Team? Anybody here, anybody here a fan of The A-Team? Okay, there's a few of you out there. It was one of my favorite shows. It's one of the few shows that we actually watched as a whole family when we, would, uh, when we were younger. <coughs> we would watch it together and we loved the crazy antics of the characters and the wild exploits of the plot and the unbelievable missions they undertook. One of my favorite parts of the show, though, was near the end when Colonel Hannibal Smith would uh, shove a cigar in his mouth and exclaim, I love it when a plan comes together. It's a wonderful feeling when a plan does come together, isn't it? There's a sense of accomplishment and a satisfaction in a job well done. Well, we have been asking the question, who do you believe Jesus is? What do you think of the man, the message, and the ministry of Jesus Christ? Is he the son of God as he claimed? Is he a liar, a lunatic, or is he Lord? Eventually, everyone is going to have to answer that question. Your eternal destiny rests on answering that answer correctly. It's not enough to claim that he's a good moral teacher, a great influencer, or just a man of peace. All those things in which he was. But the last few weeks we have focused on that question and encourage you to engage your family and friends in conversations about who Jesus is. Especially during this season when many people's minds are on Christ. Two times a year, right? Christmas and Easter. As they consider Jesus is the reason for, se- for the season. But what does that mean? And so we've encouraged you to ask your family and friends, who is Jesus? I pray that you yourself have just been contemplating that answer. Because again, that answer is more important than just a simple fact, a simple intellectual assent. But it's something that gives us eternal life. In today's passage, we're going to move back to the second chapter of Luke that records the eyewitness accounts of Jesus' birth. One theologian remarks that Luke gives a very brief account in the passage of Jesus' birth that contains three elements. First, we see the political situation. Why are they in Bethlehem? The messianic claim of who Jesus is. And then the humble circumstances of his birth. So once again, going to Luke chapter 2, 1 through 7. It's going to be here on your monitor. But again, we always encourage you to bring your Bibles with you. It says, in those days, the decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. And this was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, Judea, the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, wrapped him in swaddling cloths, and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the end. Father, we just come and as we just consider once again this familiar passage of scripture, Lord, that we would see it anew, fresh, with new eyes, spiritual eyes, and eyes and hearts that desire to know your truth. And what does it mean that Jesus was born uh, so many years ago? What does that mean to us today? What does that mean for our future? 
Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for Luke, his hard work in collecting all these eyewitness accounts so that we may have certainty and confidence that Jesus is who he says he is. And Father, I pray that that which we've received, that which was delivered to us, that we may then not only accept it, believe it, but also then, Lord, share it with others. And we thank you for that opportunity to do so. We praise in Christ's name. Amen. <coughs> Luke has written an orderly account of the life of Christ in order that his Gentiles readers may have certainty about what they've heard, received, and believed. We've talked about this many times. And Luke testifies that he has recorded these events by interviewing eyewitnesses that can confirm what the apostles have taught and spread across the Roman Empire. And as we come to the birth of Christ, you read that Luke now includes some details that are not found in Matthew's account in his gospel. One, we find that the setting is from Nazareth, then to Bethlehem. We see the occasion is a worldwide census. The plot is Mary and Joseph are traveling to Bethlehem to register for that census. And there, while there, she goes into labor and delivers the Christ child. And we see there's Caesar Augustus, there's the governor of Syria, there's Mary, Joseph, and of course Jesus. This passage helps us to dispel, to dispel I should say, some of the most popular myths about Jesus' birth. Gabriel Hughes writes in Luke chapter 2, verse 7, we read that she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no room for him in the end. We had talked about this in our adult core class, as this is one verse that's been taken out of context, has led to three common Christmas myths. Mary and Joseph arrived in Bethlehem at the last moment. They were turned away by an innkeeper. So Mary gave birth to the Savior of the world in a barn. And none of that is accurate, even though they're the most popular things in our nativity scene. And I think as we looked in our ACC, we went through each and every one of these. And I think we're fine in displaying these. But if we want to get more biblical and understanding here, we understand that there's many times that we've taken these things and, and created something that isn't real. An extra bonus figure, feature in Luke chapter 2, it also informs us that Mary was not a perpetual virgin as the Roman Catholic, Eastern Orthodox, and some Lutheran and Methodist churches teaches. Instead, Luke writes that she gave birth to her firstborn son, giving us the, the emphasis that she was giving another, or she was going to have other children and sons afterwards. Scripture tells us James and Joseph and Simon and Judas were also brothers of Christ. But as we come here, it's important as we read scripture not to go beyond what the text reveals to us. So many bad doctrines have been based on poor observation, wrong interpretations, and incorrect application. And though very brief, what Luke adds to the origins of Jesus' birth helps us to understand God's plan of redemption for his children. And that's what's important as we come here this morning, is to understand God's plan for us. This is titled, The Father's Plan for Us, was when the fullness of time would come, he would send his son to redeem his children. Now, this passage serves to reveal some wonderful spiritual truths about God's plan of redemption. Scripture informs us that this plan began before the very foundation of the world. We see its promise soon after the fall of humanity in Genesis 3.15 when God promised Eve, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring and he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. The very first proclamation of the gospel. The prophets of the Old Testament prophesied of his coming. It was foreshadowed by the work of the priest and the faithful of Israel anticipated in its appearing. 
Scripture tells us that even the very creation groans for that final day. The Bible reveals that before time that the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit had purposed together that they would redeem their children from the curse of sin and death. We learn that the Father sends the Son to be offered as our substitute to satisfy the wrath of God, thereby demonstrating his justice, his righteousness, and his mercy. But then we also see that the Son obeys the Father through his active obedience by becoming flesh, obeying the requirements of the law perfectly, and offering himself in passive obedience at the cross. And by doing so, he satisfied God's wrath against us and reconciled us back to the Father. We also see the Holy Spirit serves to bring us to the Father by giving witness to the work of Christ on our behalf, guiding us into that truth, empowering us to live godly lives and securing our salvation until that day when Christ returns physically to bring us back to the Father. But as we come back to Luke chapter 2, we read that this plan becomes a reality as Christ, the prince, remember we speak of many times the story of the Bible, the prince slays a dragon and wins the girl. Here we see the prince is now entering into the world to begin his mission to seek and to save the lost. But this passage also serves to demonstrate three truths. And that one I want to share with you this morning. The first truth is we see the father's plan demonstrates his sovereignty. The father plan demonstrates his sovereignty. And this is something that many people, even Christians, struggle with, is the sovereignty of God. Here at OVBC, we believe that all things are under the hand of God, that there is nothing that happens without God's decree. In verse 1 of Luke chapter 2, we learn why and how Jesus is born in Bethlehem. And this is important because it was prophesied in Micah 5.2 that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. It says, but O you, O Bethlehem, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be the ruler of Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. That's the scripture that was pointed to the prophet, or from the wise men, or from Herod's men to the wise men. You see, I recall from Matthew's gospel that when the wise men came to worship Christ, that they first went to King Herod to inquire where they might find the king of the Jews. Herod consults his experts who quote this verse for them. And sure enough, two years after his birth, the wise men find Jesus at Bethlehem. The apostle John points out that this was one of the problems for the religious leaders that they had with Jesus. In John chapter 7, verse 41 and 42, they complained when they said, was well, this is the Christ? But some said, is Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? See, when they considered Jesus, they considered him a Nazarite. He's from Nazareth. He's from Galilee. Disregarding or denying that he was in fact born in Bethlehem of the lineage of David. And since he grew up in Nazareth, they wrongly assumed he was born there. However, the father's plan was to have Jesus born in Bethlehem, the city of David. This passage clearly points out that Joseph went to heaven, or heaven, went to Bethlehem because he was in the lineage of David. I pray that we find Joseph there when we get to heaven. But we see that he was born in the lineage of David, meaning that he was part of the royal family. 
This was necessary because Yahweh had promised David in, in 2 Samuel that when your days are fulfilled, you will lie down with your fathers, but I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body. And I will establish his kingdom, Yahweh says. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And we know that this does not come in fruition with Solomon. For after Solomon, the kingdom was rent in two. But Jesus comes to bring it all together. Now much of this you know and have been explained before. But what you and I must consider is, how will Jesus be born in Bethlehem when his parents are from Galilee almost 100 miles away? Luke is writing so that we may not be confused by the location of his birth as the religious leaders who assumed Jesus was born in Galilee. The father's plan was that the redeemer of the world would be a descendant of the King David and be born in the small village of Bethlehem. What is interesting is how God chooses to get him from Nazareth to Bethlehem. Now, as we read Luke's account of how they got there, we might get the opinion that it was because of Caesar's decree. However, as John MacArthur correctly points out, that on the surface, political reasons determines where Jesus is born. But the ultimate cause is the God who controls history. And who guarantees that the Messiah will be born in Bethlehem as he predicted in accordance with the Old Testament prophecy. So the question is, is 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 he there due to an earthly king's edict or according to the plan of the creator of the universe? Which one is it? Well, the answer is with someone's simple word. Yes, both. From ancient sources, it seems that the Roman Empire would have a census every 5 to 14 years in order to gauge how many military men there was, aged men there were, and to help to collect the data for tax purposes. Once again, a conquered nation, Israel, must demonstrate allegiance to the Roman Empire, but yet in doing so, they also see prophecy fulfilled. And the reason that I point this out, it demonstrates the Father's sovereignty is that God's work through human means to accomplish his purpose. God always works through human means to accomplish his purpose. Though it may seem that Caesar is, Caesar's word can put the world in motion, it is really the will of the Father that he performs unwillingly and unknowingly. It is through the Roman Empire and its rulers that God's plan here on earth begins. Caesar is still subordinate to God. And actually, he accomplishes God's plan, not his own. Scripture informs us in Proverbs 21.1, you'll see this here on the monitor, that the king heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord, and he turns it whatever he will. You can think of turning on a faucet in your home, whether it's in the bathroom or in the kitchen. The water is running straight down, but once you put your hand in it, you can move that water in any direction. That's the word picture that we hear here of of, of the Father, is that the Father, King's heart, may decide that he wants to do something, but it's the Father's plan that he's actually doing. This ought to give comfort to you and I as we even think of today's politics and today's world. There is nothing happening that is not part of the Father's decree, part of his sovereign plan. You see, the Father works all things according to his purpose that his will may be accomplished. What we're reading here in this passage is what the Apostle Paul writes about 
Galatians 4, when he says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under law, so that you and I might receive the adoption as sons. The fullness of time had gone. The Father's plan is sovereign. But also see number two, the second truth that we see in this passage is that the father's plan to demonstrate his love for his children. It would be well within the father's right to leave all of humanity in its sin. You and I must understand that first. That it would be righteous and just of God to leave us in our sin and be condemned for our rebellion against him. To reap what we rightly deserve, which is death. Yet we see that God desired to communicate his love and mercy by providing a way out, a way of reconciliation, redemption. Of course, you and I have heard of that famous and familiar passage that is well known by most of the world in John chapter 3. You see it here on the monitor. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Turn, if you would, please, to Ephesians chapter 1. In this passage, it gives us a great synopsis of God's plan of redemption. Ephesians chapter 1, if you would, please. In there, we're going to start with verse 3. Paul writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places. And look at this, verse 4. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. And look at this. In love, he predestined us for adoptions as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his what? Of his will. To the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Verse 7, in him we have redemption through Christ's blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the richness of his grace, which he has lavished upon us. And all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he has set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of of time to unite all things in him through things in heaven and things on earth. Again, the father's plan demonstrates his love for children. Turn quickly to chapter 2 of Ephesians and look at verse 4 with me, maybe even on the same page. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. Amen. By grace you have been saved and raised up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Here's the thing that you and I must understand is that without the Father's love, we would be without hope. And here's the thing. This is why I encourage you to share with your family and friends during this season with the question of who is Jesus to engage him. Because you have family and friends who are without hope today. Their hope might be in retirement, their job. It might be in some political situation, some cultural situation. But we see that there is no hope in any of those things. 
Our hope is found only in Jesus Christ. That's our blessed hope that he will come and make all things that are wrong and he will make them new. And your family and friends, the greatest gift that they could have is that of hope. But that hope is only found in Christ. And again, you've heard me say, we're talking about a hope that lasts, as we see in 1 Corinthians 13, faith, hope, and love. This hope is not like the world. It's not wishful thinking. You've heard me say this before. Hope is not a wishful thinking or thinking that I hope my ship come in. I hope that I get this raise. I hope I, I win the lottery. No, biblical hope is a confident expectation that God is faithful to his promises. That's the hope that you and I have. Not a wishful thinking, but a, a confident expectation that God will do that which he says that he will do. And God demonstrates his love for us. And so you and I now have a confident expectation that the Father loves us. And he guarantees us this by not only giving us the spirit, but bringing us as his children and making us joint heirs with Christ. This passage serves to demonstrate God's great love and rich mercy for his children as Jesus is born in that manger. He's that down payment. He's the prince that will come and slay that dragon and win the girl. You and I are that girl. We are the ones that he wins, the ones that he brings to himself. But then the third truth we find in this passage is that the father's plan demonstrates the obedience of the son of God. Jesus enters into this world without fanfare. He enters this world in a small village without the trappings of royalty. When we first consider Christ's appearance as a small, helpless babe, we might think this was the Father's plan. This is, this is very common. Is this the best plan you could come up with? Would a committee of world influencers come up with such a humble plan? Definitely not. However, this humble beginning captures beautifully what Paul writes concerning Jesus in Philippians chapter 2. Again, here on the monitor. Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. Jesus, the Son of God, comes into the world as a little baby. One who has to deal with potty training, learning to crawl, learning to walk. The one who communicate, communicate, uh, created communication had to learn to write his Hebrew letters. He had to sit under someone else's instruction. The very ones that he created and brought into existence. As a son of a carpenter, he who created all the trees had to learn to shape wood by hand. He had to walk the streets. He had to suffer the ignobility of being human and all that it entails with toiletries and things of that nature. The son of God. Jesus, the Son of God, the Prince who comes to slay the dragon, the Messiah, the Christ, obediently obeys the Father, humbles himself and becomes flesh in the form of a baby. He makes himself one who now needs support to live, someone to feed him, to change him, 
to teach him, to lead him, to protect him. What is interesting about this passage is the contrast between Caesar and Jesus. Augustus, by this time, has consolidated his rule as the supreme ruler over all the emperor, Roman Empire. And his word is law. When he says, come and be registered, the whole world moves to be registered. <coughs> Luke's account, is, it is apparent that he has the power and authority to order everyone under his fear to do his bidding. Augustus was considered by the Roman world as more than just a human. One ancient inscription describes Augustus as divine Augustus, Caesar, son of a god, imperator of land and sea, and the benefactor and savior of the whole world. This is what he was known as. This is those who would come and worship Augustus. Yet you and I know that he is none of those things. In this passage, it is the little baby that's the divine, the son of God, the Lord of heaven and earth, the sustainer of all life and savior of the world. I like how the Bible project describes Jesus as the messianic king who will bring God's reign and blessing. It is not found in human political machinations. Jesus humbly demonstrates his obedience to the Father's plan. And this should cause you and I to follow him with all of our heart, and our soul, and our might. Even today, people cast doubt on Jesus' birth. As you speak to your family friends, there will some that say, I don't know what to make of Jesus. Some may say he was born. Some will say, no, he never lived. Others will say, well, he's a great teacher. He's a man of peace. He, so on and so forth. But many will not admit that he's the son of God. And if they do, they may admit that, yes, he is the son of God, but they won't submit to his authority. They deny his historical person. They disregard his teaching. They diminish his ministry and they demean his miraculous works. And unfortunately, it's just not the world that does that. There's many who would profess Christ in churches today who do the same thing. However, Luke records record ought to bring certainty of our faith in the Father's plan to send his son to redeem his children. It ought to bring us assurance, gratitude, and a pattern for life that we must trust God in all things, that God has a plan. He has a purpose for our life and that God is working all things, as scripture says, to his glory and for our good. The Father's plan brings us assurance because no matter the circumstances, we know that God is in charge and nothing can thwart his plan of redemption. Amen? Amen. He will redeem his children. He is reconciling man to God and he is coming again to bring all things together. It does not matter what political party is in control. It doesn't matter who has nuclear weapons. Who, what, or what, who dictates culture and social norms. And we are definitely living in a post-Christian world. Let me share with you that God's will be done. Do not fret. Scripture tells us do not worry to be, or to be anxious or afraid. 
but to trust in the sovereignty of the Father who promises, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning, I will thwart. I'm so glad to see you here this morning. There are many today that are not going to church because of Omicron, because of this, or because of that. But I say when God tells us not to forsake the assembling of cells, he means do not forsake the assembling of ourselves. We are to come together to love and encourage one another. Yes, in a safe way, in a public health safe way. But yet we are to gather together. It's only by meeting together can we do use our spiritual gifts. There's no such thing as a virtual church. And I encourage you during these tough times, trust in the promises of God. For he is working all things according to his plan. Do not worry about insurrections. Do not by worrying about all these things, these rumors of wars, right, that we read in, in, in Matthew. For Christ, the Father, is in control. The Father's plan also leads us to gratitude as we embrace the love of the Father. The Apostle John tells us that we love because he first loved us. The fact that the Father loves us should lead us to willingly submit to his rule and worship for him. And that's my desire for you. That's the elder's desire for you here at OVBC. Is we want you to love God, not with just a, a sentimental love, but with a love that demonstrates an uncompromising commitment to him. You see, the Father loved us when we were unlovable. And the fact that the Father loves us should lead us to willingly submit to his rule and worship in all things. He loved us when we were rebels against him. Yet, even though we were rebels against him, he still chose us. That's so important. So I would say, friends, here, Christmas is one of those times, one of the, you know, I, I, there's three types, of, three types of Christmases that people celebrate. There's the secular Christmas, right? That's the consumerism. That's the buy gifts. It's the do all the things. There's the sentimental Christmas. That's the good cheer, the happy, you know, hot cocoa, hot cider. It's the Christmas songs and the things that kind of unite us together. But then there's also the spiritual Christmas. We recognize that Christ, God, becomes flesh and dwells among us, making himself known to us. And this is so important for you and I. Yes, we can get caught up in the secular. We can get caught up in the sentimental, but it's, it's in the spiritual of who Jesus is. And what that means for you and I is that you and I need to realize that this is the time to love others as Christ loved us. To forgive, to release bitterness, anger, and resentment that might be holding up in our heart. For some of us, the Bible tells us, if you come to worship and you have something against a brother, then leave your gift at the altar, go and make it right, and then come back. And maybe there's some of us that need to do that this morning. For the Father has demonstrated his love when we are unloving, when we are unkind. For who knows, your giving of forgiveness, even when they haven't asked for it, maybe even when they haven't repented, maybe it's your love and your kindness that may lead them back to repentance. That's what Father says. Do you not know that my kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Then lastly, 
the father plan gives us a pattern of how you and I should live our lives. Typically, you and I just start our days and our lives just making our own plans. But we need to recognize that we are just moving within the father's plans. The apostle Paul teaches us to have the mind of Christ. When he writes of Christ's humbleness and obeying the father. Peter warns that God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Our lives should be marked with a humbleness in all of our relationships and endeavors. Recognizing that we are to pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Have you submitted to God's plan in your life? That may include wonderful mountaintops of joy and love and all the wonderful things of life, but there's also going to be times when we're deep in the valley, when suffering seems to be the ruler in our life. And I know many of you have undergone some many terrific, awesome, awful uh, uh, suffering in your life. But then we come to the words of David, right? I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Will not fear. So whatever, you, whatever you're doing, going in your life, recognize that you are walking God's path for you. I'd like to close with these words here in Isaiah 55. I believe they're here on the monitor. The prophet writes, For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain and the snow come down from the heaven and do not return there, but the water of the earth, make it bring forth and sprout, giving seeds to the sower and bread to the eater. So shall my words be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall be accomplished that which I purpose and shall succeed in the things for which I sent it. May we too understand that God's will be done as it was so long ago. In Bethlehem. I'm going to ask for the worship team to come up as well as Randy for our pastor's prayer. And I want you to take a moment. I know this was a simple message this morning, one that we have heard before. But again, it's to remember that the Father's plan was to send His Son. And let us not forget, it was to redeem us. Of all the things that we do this, this season, let us remember God's wonderful gift of salvation and let us share it with others. So would you take a moment just to pause? Consider the passage, consider the notes, the truths. Would you take some moment time this week just to pray? Say, Father, how would you want me to respond? In what way am I not trusting your plan? In what ways are, am I not hopeful for the future? In what ways am I not loving? And when you seek out the Spirit... And may you respond in obedience to his call. Randy, would you come pray for us? We hope you have enjoyed this week's message. We encourage you to share it with others. If you have any questions or comments, please email us at info at orangevilla.org. Be sure and join us for next week's message by subscribing to this podcast. To learn more about our ministry, submit prayer requests, or to find ways you can help share the gospel, visit us online at orangevilla.org. Till next time, we hope the grace and peace of God's love be ever present in your life.